What's going on, everyone? Jared Sandler here with you, getting ready to share with you episode 32 of the Justice Sec podcast with extremely versatile and talented writer and author Molly Knight. Before we get into Molly and her story, just want to say thank you so much for clicking on the link and going this far. It's not even been 25 seconds, but uh, the fact that you've taken the time to at least consider catching this conversation, I really appreciate it and would certainly love if you'd consider subscribing to my channel, maybe tossing a uh, click over the thumbs up button if you like where this is all headed. Uh, I try and provide as much different and, and hopefully interesting content as possible and and would love for you to join along for the ride. Molly Knight, to me, is incredibly fascinating because, A, whereas a lot of writers in the sports side of things just kind of exist in the sports arena, she exists in a number of arenas. Baseball fans know her as Molly Knight, the baseball writer. People who read Cosmopolitan might know her as Molly Knight, the writer who contributes to Cosmo or Vogue or, uh, you know, a, a lifestyle magazine. She's someone who is something different to different audiences. She's incredibly talented. Uh, and, hey, it, it makes sense because she's a relative of the great John Steinbeck. Uh, John Steinbeck was her great uncle. She's written articles. She's covered teams. She has pounded her fist on the table for what she believes in, which as some people know, and as we've discussed with some of our interview subjects already, when you're a female in the sports industry, a lot of times that gets messed with resistance, but she has continued to fight and stand up for what she believes in, including mental health awareness. And she came out with an awesome book about seven years ago, The Best Team Money Can Buy, uh, a really in-depth look into the culture and the process and the behind-the-scenes of the Los Angeles Dodgers and I love talking to Molly about all of that and more. So here we go. Episode 32 of the Justice Sec Podcast with Molly Knight. All right, Molly, open-ended question. Uh, go in whatever direction you'd like with this, but I always like to start asking, uh, start with asking this question. What was Molly Knight like growing up, and, and what were some of the things that maybe stood out about your childhood, your interests, experiences, stuff like that? Um, well... I was a very serious child. I think I took everything. Um, I took everything very seriously. So I think I was um, probably um, a warrior, but also probably uh, like unintentionally really funny. You know, because I just like these stories I hear about like people making jokes during like saying grace around the table, and I'd get so mad, like stop it. You know, um, so. Yeah, I was I was a bookworm. Um, yeah, that's that's probably the best way to describe me. What were some of your interests growing up? Things that you you were kind of drawn to? Um, well, I loved baseball. Um, somebody gave me a, a like a bag, a plastic baggie of um, a bunch of baseball top baseball cards, and I sat there and that's actually pretty much how I learned to um, alphabetize and you know order things by number I put them in their positions I put them um, uh, by team by uh, everything else and it was I think it kind of scratched that itch a little bit of like maybe a little bit um, 
I don't want to say OCD because I don't have OCD, but um, like the collector bug, um, the organizational bug. Uh, it was all very exciting to me. Look at their batting averages and numbers and, and that. Um, you know, I, I, but I also was in the girl stuff too. I loved um, playing with my Barbies and um, and my dolls and cab- ca- uh, the uh, the Care Bears. Um, and yeah, so it was. It wasn't. It wasn't all um, stuff that's traditionally geared towards little boys. It was. It was a lot of both. So, I I think a lot of the the people listening to this know you uh, through that sports lens, but yeah. you write uh, and and take part in a lot of different uh, genres and, and areas. And, and there's probably a whole segment of the population that knows Molly Knight, not for her contributions in, in the baseball world and the sports world, but uh, you know, through uh, you know, entertainment lifestyle type stuff. So it, I guess it, yeah. it seems like with what you do now, uh, it, it supports what you just said. You you had a, a lot of varied interests. Uh, was there – at what point did you decide, like, this is how I'm going to channel all my interests and this is something I can do to to incorporate all of them professionally? And, and was that initially writing or were there other things that you necessarily wanted to maybe pursue before you got to that point? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I ever really decided on, like – um, a strategy for I'm gonna I'm gonna write about this I'm gonna write about that I'm gonna have a plan a comprehensive plan I think um, if you ask people in creative fields um, it's very different than a set course like if you go to law school and become a lawyer or if you go to med school and become a doctor or a business school I mean it's it's um it, it's all sort of Everything it's kind of a it's kind of a weird winding road of different opportunities and different things that pop up and and different people that want to help you out. Um, you know, like and say, hey, I don't know why I'm doing this, but but you know, do you want to maybe write for the, the magazine I write for? Um, you know, kind of. I think there were a lot of people who, um, you know, elder elder statesmen who were really kind to me and really generous and and gave me chances, um, sort of a lot of unseen helping hands, I guess I would, I would call it. Um, it kind of feels more like coincidence and, um, and luck, uh, than, you know, any set plan. And when people ask me, like, I want to be a writer. What, how do I, what do I do? It's like, I, I, I mean, I moved to New York after college. Um, I didn't have a job, but I just figured that's where you go. Like, if you want to be an actor, you move to LA. If you want to be a writer, you move to New York. Um, and I just, it was just sort of about meeting people and, and being there and putting myself out there and, um, making connections. And, um, yeah, I wish I had more of a, <laughs> I wish, I wish I had more of a plan, but, but, um, to tell you, but, but yeah. And for me, it was just, um, it was always writing. I, I didn't really even set out to be a writer. In fact, I hated writing, um, essays in, in high school and college, but I, I sort of, so I started journaling, um, and it really helped me process how I was feeling and what I was thinking about. And I just sort of, it just, I just would feel better after I did it. And that's just sort of how I became, I guess, how I became a writer. It wasn't even like, I want to do this. It's like, I, I need to do it. <laughs> um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I think for me, I, Sports kind of it kind of made sense, um, just because I, I love sports. 
but then, um, you know, different things that have happened in the world, uh, you know, in the last couple of years and me thinking about what matters and um, kind of branching into more, you know, speaking on issues of um, homelessness and, um, you know, food insecurity and, you know, women's rights and just different things. And it wasn't even like a, I'm going to do this now with more of just like, just sort of happened, I guess. Um, no, no real strategy, but you know, uh, sometimes I can't help myself. I can't, uh, shut up. <laughs> well, but I, I wanted to ask you about that because we've never met and, and this is the first time we've had any sort of a conversation. And, and so I would never suggest that I feel like I know you, but in, in following you on Twitter, one of the things that stands out and, and, and dare I say, you know, I, I admire is that you don't seem to give a rats, you know what, and you're going to be yeah. you. And you know, we, 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 you know, the whole world is caught up in the last dance and, and in the most recent right. pair of episodes, Michael Jordan made, you know, had the, they, 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 uh, brought back the the comedy made you know Republicans buy sneakers too and and that right, right. that applies to what what I do as a broadcaster it applies yep. to what you do you don't you don't you know we're we're taught to not alienate people yet you have sure. this comfort and confidence that you're just going to be you I, where did that come from and 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 if it wasn't something you just had from birth how did that kind of develop well um i think yeah i mean i never tweeted about politics uh before um, recent events, and I, I guess because I wasn't I wasn't paying as close attention as I should have been, and also just because it's exhausting. I never felt like it wasn't so much that I was afraid to speak my mind, although um, I've definitely worked for companies that would not have um, been too pleased about that. But um, I think it was more just like this is exhausting to have any to put any kind of you know, idea out there that someone could consider political because you're just going to get into an argument. And, you know, I, I hate, I, I feel like internet arguments are just counterproductive. So that's sort of, you know, why I, I never did it before. And then, I mean, there was definitely, I mean, part of it was that I was, I had, I had written a book. Um, it did relatively well. I um, wasn't working for, I, I, I left, um, my job at ESPN to finish my book because I didn't have enough time. I wasn't going to have enough time to, to do both. Um, and, uh, and so I, I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't have a job. So it was like, well, no one's here to yell at me if I, if I say something. Um, and you know, I thought I was going to lose Twitter followers, but I didn't really care. Um, but then what happened was like my Twitter following quadrupled. <laughs> so, <laughs> It's sort of like, um, uh, yeah, I think, I think people can, um, people do see when you're just being, when you're being yourself and you're saying what you want to say and you're not, um, you know, trying to be, uh, it's almost like a, it's, it's, yeah, it's almost like you're not being political in a way. Like you're not, you're not trying to, um, appeal to as many people as possible, which is what politicians have done in the past. Um, but I mean, I'm as surprised as anybody else that I truly thought my, my uh, following was going to be cut in half and, and that it was going to jeopardize, you know, future book sales because, you know, the the uh, typical uh, baseball fan is a white male, older, and that tends to be in the political spectrum 
that I'm not in. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, but but then it just it's kind of worked out. Um, I don't know if these people who follow me for uh, my takes on politics are necessarily going to buy another base, a baseball book for me, but maybe they will. Who knows? <laughs> and in and, and the book uh, you're referring to, New York Times bestseller, The Best Team Money Can Buy, about the Los Angeles Dodgers. Yeah. What inspired you to uh, use the Dodgers as as your muse, I guess, and, and, and to actually move forward and write this book? Were, were you wanting to write a book and they happened to be the topic, or was it just unfo- uh, what unfolded with the Dodgers that kind of led you down that path? I mean, it was definitely what unfolded with them. Um, it was right after the movie Moneyball came out, and I think uh, a lot of them thought, I mean, it was actually a couple of players who encouraged me, like, you should write a book, because it was so uh, absurd. Like, they went from being in bankruptcy, the team in bankruptcy, and the players not knowing um, how they were going to get paid or what what was happening, um, to being uh, bought by Magic Johnson's group for the largest uh, sum in professional sports history in the United States. So it was like they went, it was just like a rags to riches crazy story and, and the characters in the locker room were also uh, quite nuts. So it was really fertile, some fertile ground. And um, I was resisting for a while. I was scared. I'd never written anything longer than like 6,000 words before. My book was 103,000 words. So um, I was, even after players were, had said, write a book about us. I mean, I think because I, I, about Moneyball, I think some of them thought, oh, it'll be like Moneyball and Brad Pitt could play me in the movie, you know, like, (laughs) um, (laughs) even then I was resisting and nervous and dragging my feet and um, I kind of went around the locker room and was asking different guys what they thought about the book and if I did a book and basically like most of them said sure and then they either said sure or they didn't care or they didn't really like know what the difference between a book or a um, or a uh, article was, I mean, in terms of how it would affect their day-to-day life of me asking them questions. So, so yeah, it was, um, it was actually their idea. And then it sort of, uh, I guess, escalated from there. And, and the book is awesome and it really gives unique insight and, and just from having read it and, and it's interesting here. And you say that the players were maybe in some way, shape or form behind the, the motivation. Did that help? to have players who uh, it, it was, a, I guess, in part their idea, knowing that even if they didn't know what, what that all entailed, that you would have the support of some players as you embarked on this jersey? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think um, I honestly don't even think that they were really paying that much attention to me, you know, because the book is something that's so far down the road, you know, like, and um, that it wasn't part of their daily reality and and you know some books um come come out and nothing happens um and i mean i definitely knew that i was like that i had something good because it wasn't because of my my writing um necessarily but it was just because i knew they were i knew they were telling me stuff that they shouldn't um and i knew that that's just as you know access is just so rare that it was just that I was, uh, that I had stuff that no one else had. And that, um, 
it was a really fascinating scene with a lot of fascinating uh, polarizing characters so that some of the stuff was going to be like news um, but, you know some of the stuff about Puig or Matt Kemp or Zach Granke or Adrian Gonzalez um, would be would, would be very interesting for some people to hear about so yeah and, and, and Yasiel Puig was uh... Yeah. You know, maybe one of the, the biggest characters in, in baseball over the last decade and, and obviously a big part of the book. And, and I want to get into covering Puig in a second. But in general, whether it's covering a team or writing a book, the, the relationships you build with players, coaches, people in the front office are so important. How, how do you go about building those relationships and, and establishing the trust so that you're able to get the unique insight and, and access that you were able to get for this book and, and for other things before and, and since. Right. Well, it was actually, um, it was interesting. I got some really good advice um, uh, from Buster Olney, who I mentioned, you know, mentors, and he has been, a, I don't even think he would, he would agree that he's been one of my mentors because he'd say, I haven't, I've barely done anything, but he's done a lot. Um, you know, he was one of the first, people when I was starting out, you know, like he would retweet me. Like it was, it was crazy to have someone, you know, I had like 400 Twitter followers and he had like a hundred thousand, you know, and I just would get so excited, you know, it, just, it was like validating and helpful and um, thrilling. And I, I, um, really what I wanted to pattern my book after it, it I mean, not, maybe not necessarily, necessarily in the structure, but Buster wrote a book called the last night of the Yankee dynasty. And it's, Yankee Dynasty, and it's one of the finest books I've ever read, and the level of detail in that book was just so um, crazy, like, insightful, and I just thought, this is, this is what I've got to do. I've got to get these these tiny details about what these players do and what they're like, and it, it got me thinking about, about that, and um, so he asked me, because I had been around the Dodgers for, you know, not every day, but around them for years, so I knew most of them. I mean, just, I mean they knew my face, maybe they didn't know my name, but um, he he said to me, have you gotten, does Clayton talk to you yet? Like, does he trust you? And I said, you know, he's he's so guarded. Um, he's not, he's kind, but he's not, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't really talk to anyone up that way, open up to any journalist that way. And he said, well, here's what you got to do. He's got to see that, the veterans on the team that he looks up to, that they're talking to you. Um, and that's the way you get him to notice who you are. He told me that, like, make an effort so that he sees that you're, you're chatting with the people he looks, figure out who he looks up to and, and develop relationships with them. And if he sees that you're in and sure enough, um, that's exactly what happened. Uh, he, I, I was having a long conversation with, um, a group of guys in the clubhouse during spring training once, and he walked in, I think he kind of saw me, whatever, and then the next day, he said, hi, Molly, like, he knew my name, and I was like, well, that's interesting, <laughs> you know, he must have asked somebody who, who what's her deal, what's the story, um, I remember when Zach Cranky was trying to figure out, because I tried to get a sit down with him all year, and he just kept sort of putting me off, putting me off, um, and then one day, some guys told me that he was out checking uh, fly balls during batting practice, and he was like, "So that Molly, does she, does she, uh, does she know the game?" And guys were laughing, like, "Yeah, she knows." 
like she they, like he was like doing his homework on me. Um, and then I guess he went to my Twitter because one day he walked over to me and said, "I liked I liked one of your tweets." And I said, "Well, which one, Zach?" He says, "I'm not going to tell you." <laughs> and you would know because then you would because then you would know what I thought was smart. <laughs> I'm like, okay, <laughs> thank you. So then one day after like, you know, like all year long, it was September and he just walked up to me out of nowhere and was like, okay, I'm ready now. And we sat down and I, I got to interview him for like 20 minutes and or 15 minutes. And, you know, we didn't really go into like deep, dark places, but he didn't ever do that. He still doesn't do it. He just only talks after it starts um, about that, about that game. So, um, so yeah, that was, uh, that was definitely a, uh, a great experience, a weird experience, but I, I grew to really um, appreciate how different he was, um, and yeah, that was that also made you know the fact that someone like him and um, and uh, uh, that uh, him him and Yasiel Puig were in the same locker room was just insane, you know. <laughs> so. so yeah, what was it like? Covering Puig, and if I'm not mistaken, you never really were able to get Puig to talk to you. Uh, and Puig was right. such a lightning rod. He was so good uh, at first, but then also maybe didn't do things the right way or, or rub people the wrong way. And uh, I, I, what was, book yeah. aside, what was it like covering Yasiel Puig through the beginning of Puig mania and, and then as it unfolded and it wasn't all shiny and glittery? Yeah, you know, it was really, really challenging because I was, on the one hand, I was so sensitive to how he was being covered, um, to a lot of the, frankly, um, weak and tired criticisms of, like, him bat-flipping, you know. I, I, I do not care about bat-flipping. You cannot convince me somebody's a terrible person or doesn't respect the game if they flip their bat after hitting a home run. If I had a home run, I would be so excited. I, it, I don't even. It wouldn't even be. I wouldn't be thinking like I'm going to disrespect this pitcher. I'm just like yes, and throwing my hands up in the air. You not know, that's not to mention in front of like forty thousand people in a big moment. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god! With all the adrenaline pumping, like I would, I would be so happy. And and so I thought that criticism of Puig was so wrong, so misguided. He's probably a little bit racist. You know, definitely um, just this whole, like, oh, old school, new school, blah. And, um, and just I hated it. But at the same time, he was – his teammates were exhausted by him. And, and his, his antics, I mean, he was showing up to games or to, to batting practice late, and he was um, just not following any of the rules that other people had to had – to, um, had to live by and these guys are in close quarters with each other like all year long for nine months ten months and they're on each other's last nerves anyway um and so when somebody is sucking up all the oxygen in the room uh testing the manager showing up late and still getting to play because he's selling tickets and the team president is telling the manager you have to play him no matter what i mean it created a lot of resentment and a lot of um hard feelings and a lot of drama and that was a real thing it had nothing to do with um that flipping or um 
you know, new school, old school, whatever. It was just, it was just uh, somebody who was a problem in the locker room. So I really struggled with like, how do I, how do I like present this information about Puig, which is critical and incoming from his teammates without being lumped into the category of like, oh, I hate fun. I'm a racist. I'm a, I'm, I'm a dinosaur, you know, what, even though I'm, you know, three years older than Puig or like, how do I, how do I, um, or five years older, I don't remember how old he is, but like, how do I do that? And it was just so frustrating, especially because Dodger fans loved him uh, and they didn't want to hear any of it, any of it. They, they just, they get so defensive. It was almost like it was tribal. It was like, um, it kind of reminded me of people who are, you know, obsessed with a, the political uh, figure, and and there's no, and you can't ever say anything bad about that person, or or not even bad, but you can't even point out any kind of um, news that doesn't paint them in the best light. They'll just call it fake news. Fake news. How would you know? It's like, well, I'm there every day, and players and coaches are giving me detailed explanations about what's going on, and I see it with my own eyes. Like, I don't know how you call me fake news. Like, how, how do you know better than me and you're sitting at home, you know? Um, but I realized that it wasn't, it wasn't um, that fandom oftentimes is not rational. It's, um, it's emotional. And um, it's really hard to, to break through. You know, it makes, it makes people rationalize all kinds of, bad behavior. Um, Puig never, and to be clear, Puig was just a pain in the ass to his teammates and coaches because he was late and he was um, so loud in the locker room. There was just never, it was like, it was like someone performing at all times for attention. And, you know, he just, he, he didn't, certain times he didn't hustle or he'd be in the wrong spot defensively and or he wouldn't listen to certain things. And, and that was having to do with coaching and, and strategy you know, base running mistakes, all that stuff. Um, but he's not a criminal, you know. He's not a guy that the Dodgers signed cheap because he beat up his wife or his kid. Um, so it was like, how do I draw the distinction between presenting the truth without, like, with also, like, not signaling, singling this guy out as, like, you know, Adolf Hitler, like he, like it wasn't like that. It wasn't like um, he needed to be thrown off the team or, you know, any of that. It was just, it's just, it's, a, it's. A, I think it's a phenomenon that, that I mean, all of us played sports, played basketball or baseball or soccer or football or whatever with somebody who was super talented and nuts, like who didn't follow the rules. And you know, there's a trade-off because you want them to help you win, so you can't like kick them off the team or bench them. So. That's basically what was going on this week. So you grew up, if I'm not mistaken, you grew up a, a big Dodgers fan. Is that right? Yes, we did. Uh-huh. Okay. And and I know that, you know, for people in the media, like I, I grew up in in DFW, a diehard Rangers fan, and I'm fortunate to get yeah. to broadcast for the Rangers. So, frankly, I, that hasn't quelled in any way. I'm still, you know, I can't be a total homer on air, but, uh, right. you know, I, I still have that in me. I know sometimes, though, because of responsibilities, that, that wanes a little bit. How would you characterize your your Dodgers fandom now, and 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 I guess also maybe before you wrote the book? Um, that's a good question. So I I think it's, it's interesting that um, you know obviously 
so many. You think that most baseball writers grew up rooting for a baseball team because they're this passionate about baseball. I mean, they were watching. That I, I, you know, not many kids are are not many diehard baseball fan kids are just neutral observers with no team that they root for. Um, so, so yeah, people definitely suppressed it, and I and I get it. Um, I. I definitely, um, it's funny because, yes, I'm a, a Dodger fan. I grew up a Dodger fan, but um, I think in some ways that has, um, that's, like, inspired me to be more, at times, more critical of the organization, more more questioning, like, what is going on here when the McCourt's on the team and they ran it into the ground. I took that personally because I've, I feel that the Dodgers, I mean, my family's been in L.A. for five generations, and they were, you know, Dodger fans from the jump when they came out here in the um, in the early 60s. And um, I, 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 I take it, took it as, I took it personally, like, this guy is, like, the Dodgers are a civic institution, and they provide, the, the team provides a lot of joy and comfort and distraction um, for this, for the people of this city. And so when there was an owner who ran into the ground, I was, I was definitely offended. Um, and so that sort of, that's, I guess, what, what this book sprang from because ESPN, I was telling them right away when, when these guys came in that they were bad and this was going to be bad. I, I mean, when the, when the Dodgers divorce started, that this was going to be really bad. And I was, you know, raising the alarm and, um, before it was on their radar, because ESPN is very East Coast um, focused. Being in Bristol, it's, um, it's they're not as in tune with what was going on in LA. And this is before. This was while they were starting to get a get get um, Sports Center in LA. They were trying to get it going out here with, um, uh, you know, taping Sports Center, taping ESPN News, having a radio flagship, and having um, local websites. Um, and, but they didn't have they didn't really have boots on the ground yet, so I was moving back from New York to LA, and I just said I'll 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 go cover this, and I covered their the uh, um, I worked for the magazine at the time. They they traded me over to the website for a couple months to go to the courthouse, the divorce courthouse, and file a couple of news stories every day, and um, yeah, and that's sort of where it sprung from. It's funny I've 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 I've, uh, I've had. Like if I ever got accused of being like a Dodger homer by, by opposing fans, it's pretty funny because uh, I'm I know that certain people who run the Dodgers are get frustrated with me that I'm too hard on the Dodgers. <laughs> <laughs> that I that I back at one point a former GM got so mad at me he would he even asked me do you even like the Dodgers which was very inappropriate because I'm a journalist you know uh, it doesn't matter whether I like the Dodgers I'm not a, I'm not a tributer um, so. Yeah, that I definitely feel I could be uh, unbiased, and I wrote a I wrote an honest book. I, I didn't want to write a book that was um, that was uh, you know just some kind of glossy like yay everything everything's golden book. I wanted to write an honest book. I, I, but I challenged myself to you know really think about the people I was writing about, and if there was something negative like with Puig, for instance, being being kind of a nightmare in that clubhouse. You know, I also was very careful to point out that the Dodgers did not do him any favors the way that they um, integrated him into the team, the way that they brought him up when everything was horrible and they were all going to lose their jobs, the manager and the GM, and he came in and was awesome and saved their jobs, and, and they never um, they never 
instituted any rules. They never, um, I mean, they never followed through on any of it. They just, like, gave their, the toddler the keys to the Lamborghini. And then, you know, how how can you be mad when things go wrong? I, I thought they, they they didn't give him a proper interpreter. They, they pulled someone from international scouting to do that. Um, they didn't, they just, they did not help. And so a lot of it was, was on them. Um, and not on Puig at all. So cause he was very smart, and he saw he didn't have a role, so he, of course, he's going to do whatever he can get away with. Um, so, yeah, just in thinking that way and trying to just not present characters like this person's good and this person's bad, but um, trying to figure out how to present more complexities, I guess. how I challenged myself. Side note to Puig, I remember, Molly, as he was, I guess, before he had, struck gold, so to speak, at the major league level. Uh, I was broadcasting for the Great Lakes Loons, which, as you know, is an affiliate of the Dodgers. And we were praying that we got Yasiel Puig. I mean, in minor league yeah. baseball, you just want any anyone that's exciting because the reality is, and, and these are usually some of the best guys that you're around, but uh, most of the players aren't going to make it. And yeah. uh, I now wonder, you know, what life would have been like, even if we had him for a week, uh you know, it, it yeah. probably, I, I don't know, maybe it was a be careful what you wish for, especially with what you said, the way the Dodgers were, were kind of handling his, uh, him yeah. in general yeah. on the field and off the field. Uh, it was interesting because somebody with the Giants asked me, um, was asking me about Puig recently. There are rumors they might sign him and all that. And, and I just said, you know, he does look up there. But, the problem too with the Dodgers was they didn't have, um, like, nobody, none of the none of the veterans like took him under their wing and said, um, "This is how we do things," you know, or like, "You're going to train with me in the offseason. You're going to rent a house out here, and we're going to work out together, and we're going to you're going to come over and eat, have dinner with my family, and you're going to do um, X, Y, Z," which is um, what happens on other teams there's leadership and people do that. And the Dodgers had a total leadership vacuum. Um, the only person who he respected and, and looked up to um, and cared what he thought was, I think, Adrian Gonzalez. And Gonzalez just didn't um, just, I mean, it, it, there's, there just wasn't that commitment to, I mean, it's not his, it's not his job. He's trying to worry about his own, you know, career and, family and everything right so it's a lot to ask of someone to basically adopt a large you know a large adult son and and take them you know under your wing all the time but I, I'm kind of telling someone with the Giants well look you know it's going to be he, he really might come in and look up to Pablo Sandoval or Johnny Cueto and because you know he respects their careers and and, and you know they, they speak the same language um, literally and you know it's he, he might really care what they think and maybe they can, um, you know, help guide him, but it's not like Puig's easy to rein in anyway. So, you know, it, I, I can't really totally blame um, Gonzalez or other, or other veterans. Cause I know they were just as, you know, exhausted by it as, by as, as everyone else. So, yeah. All right, Molly, uh, one, one last question. Uh, I, I think I read that, John Steinbeck is your great uncle, is it? I just want to make sure. Yes. Okay. That's fun. Yeah, he's my, um, we are a pretty small family. Um, he's 
my great-grandmother's brother, um, and I have a lot of his his things, actually. I have a, a trunk of his for, that he used when he worked for the uh, New York Herald that's at the foot of my bed. has his name and address painted on it, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah. So it's kind of a, but it's not, it's not a really widely known fact because it's kind of a lot of pressure to live up to well, if you're a writer. I, I was going to ask, and, and, and I don't believe I, I, uh, I, w- I would have looked this up on the internet if the internet wasn't out uh, because I fell out of a chair and knocked the cable about 25 minutes ago. But I, I don't believe, I, I think he passed before you were born. And, and so, yes. okay, so you, you never had a, an actual like human relationship with him, but has oh. he, has he influenced, like just, being able to go back and, and see what he did and, and what he accomplished in his works as an author, as a writer, have you been able to draw or gain any influence or is it just more of a cool fact that, Hey, this, he was my great uncle and, and wow, how successful was he? Or, or did you have any sort of influence from him? Yeah. You know, I think what's most interesting is kind of, um, for me, like that's my mom's family and, um, there weren't a lot of, um, in my mom's family, it's a lot of like uh, lawyers and business people and kind of, you know, buttoned up um, people who, and sometimes I feel a little nuts around them, you know, being <laughs> being a writer and being kind of like not having a nine to five and kind of, um, I don't know, being all over the place. And I, but for me, like reading, reading some of his journals, um, I mean, the journals that are publicly available and, and knowing different things and, and knowing that he was, he was nuts as well. Um, I mean, in a good way, I don't mean, I don't mean you know, bad, but that kind of gives me, um, it, it makes me feel better. It makes me feel like, okay, well, you know, there are people that's like my mom, my grandma, and my aunt, like they all knew him, you know, cause they were alive when he was alive. And so, and they, they saw that he was doing his thing. And I think that, that kind of, um, helps them to understand what I do a little, a little more maybe than if that had, that hadn't been the case. I mean, um, yeah. And I mean, I definitely, uh, his book East of Eden is the best book I've ever read. I, I, I think like Grapes of Wrath and Mice of Men and the more famous ones are good, obviously, but East of Eden is like, um, it's just the best thing I've ever read. So, um, I, I reread it probably every other year. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I find a lot of inspiration from um, his work. I mean, he died like 20 years before I was born or more, so that sucks. But, um, but yeah, I knew his widow, actually. She lived until 2003, so that was cool. She was she was awesome, a woman named Elaine who was an actress from Austin, Texas, and a, just a like, powerhouse feminist and wonderful creature and... Um, she was just the best. But yeah, I, I would say, I would say that I do, but I have drawn inspiration from him for sure. 